the aviary sequence. Beyond money, this has to be the reason the film was made. It's nearly perfect in every way, from the moment Billy asks for his bag to the moment he is seemingly killed. The sequence appears to be the most solid and the most planned out. It's a glimpse at what the film could have been from beginning to end, had there been more time to work on the script. From my conversations about JP3, it's clear the sequence was part of earlier scripts, and that allowed the proper time to fully plan out every detail. It's more than just a scene of terrifying dinos. The dim fogginess, the terror, it's all there to add to a sequence that has a beginning, middle, and end with actual consequences that affect our hero, Alan Grant. Production designer, Ed Vareau. So you sent me a couple of sketches and one of them is essentially a huge cave. Was this really considered or were you just brainstorming? So one of the big ideas was, well, uh, is this going to be a big canyon where they built, you know, they built big truss systems over the top and it, it's all netted in? Or is it going to be a big cave or is it going to be partially cave, partially canyon, you know, something, something really wonderfully, you know, fantastic. And so that's, that's what that illustration was. That was just me kind of playing around with the idea about what if it was, you know, uh, if you pull back and you went, oh, my God, like it's this huge cave instead of it being a big open canyon with big, uh, like, you know, literally with, with like, you know, uh, Yankee Stadium size netting over the top of it. Any kind of a, a visual effects movie like this, there's a tremendous amount of, of design work and there's a tremendous amount of just kind of throwing ideas out, spitballing, we call it, that, um, you know, where you say, well, you know, what about if it looks like this or what about if it looks like that? And so lots of times, you know, some of the most interesting stuff is the stuff that doesn't get used, you know, and it's not that it would have been the best solution for the film, but it's just kind of like an interesting way that, you know, you go off some way. So uh, that's all that was. That was just me playing with, you know, just some different ideas about, you know, what did that, what did that part of the world of Jurassic, of, of uh, I believe the island was called Isla Muerta, which means the island of death. Uh, what what was it? Or was it Isla Sorna? Anyway, you know. Yeah, Sorna. Now, those of you that are paying attention, okay, catch me on this. Um, <clears throat> excuse me. And, um, yeah, you know, what part of Isla Sona is this, you know? So, you know, it, it, you know, it could have been anything. So that's that's all that was. That was just to sort of keep, uh, I think, you know, opening up new vistas for the audience. So you're not just, oh, it's another jungle. Oh, it's another property. You know, trying to make it, trying to keep it going, keep it interesting, and keep revealing uh, new things to show. Storyboard artist Jack Johnson also sent me images of the aviary sequence, and they were also a cave instead of a cage. Jack, I spoke to Ed Vero, and he also had images of the cave. Do you recall if you were working closely with him on this, and was there mention of the cave in the script? Honestly, I don't remember. I, I know that I was trying to deal with all the possibilities of trying to cage these birds. And a cave was certainly a natural one. Uh, and it probably one that was a little easier to deal with as far as backgrounds and, and what those shots might cost. But the, uh, the idea of a net and spokes on a net and how you support it and 
you know, you when you do something gigantic like that, uh, people who are in construction sort of laugh and say, yeah, that's that's ridiculous. But in a movie, you don't have to deal with that too much. But it, uh, I must have done 15 variations uh, between simple caves to complicated caves to to caves that became a canyon with some sort of cover over it. And I think the, uh, the circular uh, ca- uh, screen, so to speak, was probably the, uh, the, towards the end as a more of a last resort as to what it might look like. One of the most interesting details of the sequence involves Eric Kirby jumping pillar to pillar, like on these rock structures. Was this your creation or just a part of the script that you were illustrating? Those were thumbnails. I think there are four or five of them all in the one little uh, row. Uh, what I was thinking was the uh, Devil's Post Pile in nor- uh, near Yosemite, or near Mammoth in California where the, the crystallize in those shapes. And it all it was was to give a, uh, other than a ordinary rock piles or whatever, it gave sort of a different dimension. Honestly can't remember whether there was anything in the script about him jumping from rock to rock or top to top. Just in general, most of the time when, when when Joe does storyboards, the first thing he does is not look at them. You know, he, I've had, I kind of call them diving boards um, because they're just the, they're the place where he starts and he designs a sequence of storyboards, but then he'll often shoot totally differently. Um, and he did that on pretty much every sequence except the Torondon sequence. The Torondon sequence is pretty much exactly what was boarded. And, and the reason is because it was in so many different stages and so many different, it, there was, it was never one set. Um, and we shot out of sequence. So we, we more or less had to stick to the boards or else we were going to get ourselves in trouble. Um, so, you know, the first part where they see the pteranodons and they, they kind of land and, you know, where he gets kicked in the head and they kind of trap them on the thing and they fall. And, you know, then there's the whole part where Trevor gets picked up and they have to chase him and, you know, and, and, uh, and then they end up in the water. So there, there were so many components and so many different sets that we did stick very much to the boards on that. And uh, so we could plan our shots pretty religiously from that. And, and uh, um, but that, the storyboards only tell you so much, you know, the storyboards, obviously a still frame and you're doing, you're shooting things a lot with dynamic movement that aren't even there. Um, so you're, you're, you're asked, you're being asked to imagine, okay, what would happen if this Toronto would fly in very quickly and what is it? And Joe had a very good eye for that kind of stuff. David, you were a production manager mostly during pre-production, but left just after filming began. Is there anything you can share about the planning of the aviary sequence from what you remember? The, the writers were told that the aviary scene, aviary scene, that's, that's, done that's already in the computers so you can't screw with that you know uh, a little bit about uh, when you're in the cameras on the faces of the humans but when when the the uh, the birds are flying around you know that's pretty much in done done deal and, and that sort of thing so between the the uh, the areas between uh, those uh, set pieces the the visual effects set pieces the cgi and that work 
um, that was kind of fixed. We scattered locations. We, you know, we 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 all get in the van. I mean, the, the main people were on Ed, Ed and Shelley and, and Joe and and Larry and I and uh, you know, kind of set set decorators and that sort of thing. We 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 looked for that aviary scene, and we thought we tried to figure out ways to build it. Um, and um, you know, I'm uh, we. I, I'm not sure how they actually did it. They did it, I think they did it on stage, but because they, uh, the first day of shooting was in Hawaii and all of the, and so we, they did all the location stuff and then came back to the Universal Stages. So Billy doesn't always get the appreciation I think he deserves. He's often labeled as like a blank character, not much of a background, just kind of boring, but I completely disagree. And sure, I do want to know more about him, but even in this 90-minute film, there's enough for us to care when he dies. Or almost dies. And this portion of the film works towards that because it begins with the reveal that Billy has done something terrible. Alan, you want to give me the bag back? It's okay, Billy, I got it. Please give me the bag. It's not safe. Grant opens the bag. Raptorites. Did you steal Raptorites? This entire film, we know Billy looks up to Grant. The very first time we see Billy, he's being all cool, casually hanging out on a raptor skeleton with a young woman, chatting it up. He's a cool kid. She's giggling away. I can never tell what's rock. And what's bone? Technically, it's all rock, but calcium in the bones is replaced during fossilization. But you can feel the difference, eh? Rough. Smooth. Rough. Smooth. <laughs> Dr. Grant! <laughs> Mr. Brennan! The second Grant arrives, Billy gets up and leaves her like it's nothing. Gone. Done. So when Grant says, you're no better, it devastates him. Now it all makes sense. I swear, if I'd known that you were going to end up with him, I took him on an impulse. I thought they'd be worth a fortune enough to fund the dig site another ten more years. Look, you have to believe me. This was a stupid decision, but I did it with the best intentions. With the best intentions. Some of the worst things imaginable have been done with the best intentions. Brad Jost, the host of the Jurassic Park podcast. That like argument between Grant and Billy, that is like, that's a brutal moment to me. Like Grant, I, I don't recognize him in that moment. He's he's always been, you know, like I kind of said before, he's a bit selfish at times and kind of like self-centered. But like at that moment, he's just like, he, he doesn't feel himself and he feels like very not, I don't want to say evil, but he, he gets towards that way when he's like, you're just as bad as the people who built this place. And you're like, Grant, come on, man. Like, okay, <laughs> that's that's a little brutal. But yeah, it's really rough. And then I do love that that look back towards Grant as like he, you know, he clasps the, uh, the vest thing and then dives off the cliff. And it's like, you know, he's trying to salvage something there. And 
And uh, I do love that that back and forth between the two of those characters. But like Grant, it's just like, man, that was that was really brutal. You didn't have to go there, man. The characters walk down the stairs and they leave Billy standing there alone. It's an incredibly lonely shot and one that I wish would linger for just a moment longer. Just let, just let Billy suffer a little bit more. And although it's Billy's fault, the master, Alan Grant, has officially left The Apprentice. In some action films, including the Jurassic franchise at times, there are moments when the heroes make stupid decisions. My personal opinion is that I want the hero to have no other choice. Like Grant going over the edge in JP1 with Lex hanging onto him, he had to do it. He had no other choice. Much like John McClane in the first Die Hard film, when he jumps off the roof with a fire hose tied around his waist, he feels he has no other choice. So in this sequence, Grant leads the group down the stairs because, of course, they're being hunted by the Spinosaurus. Now, we kind of skipped over the part where the Spino chased them into this aviary building in the first place, but I promise we will talk about that in a later episode. As they move down the stairs, they reach a platform, and they have two options. They can either A walk across the creepy foggy bridge which is a terrible idea or option b simply walk down the stairs all the way to the bottom get a boat head to the coast it's a pretty clear choice grant wisely chooses the stair option and begins to walk down suddenly the stairs give way And this is where we get another criminally underrated shot. And in true JP3 fashion, it's brief. Too brief. There's a moment where Grant glances at Billy as he walks by and Billy stares back. It's clear that Grant is thinking they are in this situation because of Billy and Billy is silent. Almost afraid of getting yelled at again. The shot is quick, but it adds to the tension, showing the dramatic shift in these two characters. They were a team up until this sequence. This is where Grant has no other choice but to risk his life again by being the first one to cross the bridge. A bridge in which you can't see the other side. And remember, at this point, they don't even realize they're in a giant birdcage. Let's do this one at a time, shall we? Grant goes first. And this is where our hero begins to realize something's wrong. It's a slow realization, which only adds to the suspense. Everything has been building to this moment. Mrs. Kirby crosses the bridge, followed by Eric. Halfway across, the bridge starts to shake, and Eric quickly grabs the railing. Mom? And that's when our hero realizes they are in way more trouble than he ever thought. Oh my god. What is it? It's a birdcage. For what? To many people, including myself, the scene is terrifying and beautiful. It's the highlight of the film. Stephen Ray Morris of the See Jurassic Right podcast. I think the aviary sequence, and I think the reason why the aviary sequence, you know, stands the test of time in that regard is because it was, as far as I know, was planned and executed. You know, like, you know, it wasn't something made up on the day. It was, it was there was more time for it to mature and for it to, I mean, it feels like its own little short film within JP three. It really kind of, you know, there's that beginning middle end, you know, there's reversals, there's, 
you know, there's stuff going into it thematically that's interesting with Billy. And, you know, there there's there's movement and weight to that whole sequence that I think holds up better than anything else in the movie. I personally, I'm not a I'm a dinosaur guy. And, you know, I love my Mosasaurs and I love my Pteranodons. But, you know, I, I'm still never going to like love, uh, you know, I'm just not a Pteranodon kind of guy. So, you know, I, I do like the see. I, I like everything for what it is filmically, but I guess I'm not. I, I don't know why I'm trying to go on record of being like, I don't really care for pteranodons, but I guess that's part of <laughs> that's part of my statement here, you know, but uh, as the as a sequence itself and as a bit of Jurassic lore and as as, you know, as far as like great scenes from Jurassic as a franchise, I certainly think it's in the top 10. Hi, guys. Uh, my name is Anthony Feliciano. I'm a filmmaker and I'm also a gigantic Jurassic Park 3 fan. I think it's one of the best scenes in the entire series. It, the atmosphere is beautiful. The tension build up before the Trinodon shows up. You know, you see the bridge ricketing around and the, you just hear the sounds of it before it emerges and then it emerges behind fog. Like, it's such a pure experience of just horror <laughs> of just like walking through this place. You have no idea what's around you. And all of a sudden, like, there are these flying monsters after you. I, it, it's incredible. The build up is incredible. Uh, I think the visual effects hold up incredibly well. The the blend between the animatronic puppets of the babies and and the CG blends so well together. Uh, it's 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 amazing. I love that. I love that scene. Anthony, we briefly chatted about the comparison between the T Rex breakout scene in the first film and the breakout scene of the Indominus Rex in Jurassic World, and how the two are handled very differently. And without trash talking Jurassic World, there are elements to effective storytelling and a way to build that tension and suspense that I think JP3 did correctly. Yeah, no, I totally get what you're saying, because I would argue that the aviary sequence is up there with the T-Rex breakout in the first film, because there's a level of buildup before you see the terror. It's definitely not as well as the uh, as the initial T-Rex breakout in the first film, but like, you know, in the first film, you had the rippling glass of water, then you see the windshield vibrating, then the fence, like there's a buildup. And then with the Trinodons, it's also that buildup. You walk down this mysterious area, uh, then you hear like wing flaps, and then then the bridge shakes and then you hear something walking on the like there's some buildup and kind of with the indominus breakout i would argue it's a little bit harder to get into that mindset because the characters kind of enter the indominus i'm i'm not trying to shit talk jurassic world but um the characters the characters kind of go in there and it's kind of dumb that they go in there but in Jurassic 3, they they have to because they have to get to the boat. That's the only way down from the canyon. They're like hundreds and hundreds of feet up in the air. They have to get down there. But with Jurassic World, it's like, uh, you why why are you walking in there? Why? <laughs> and you can follow Anthony on Twitter at the Ant Feliciano. T H E A N T F E L I C I A N O. I'm James Ronan. Um, I'm an MSc Paleobiology student at the University of Bristol. So I'm currently in the final part of my studies. I'm currently writing my thesis, which is looking at hadrosaur um, sort of dentition. So looking at mandibular change across the Cretaceous. And um, I've been part of the Jurassic community now for about five, must be about five years. I, I joined the Jurassic Park podcast around about 2018. I was writing articles for them. And I also contribute contribute on certain episodes of the podcast as well as take take part in on the missing compies podcast as well and various other uh podcast episodes within the fandom 
James, can you think back to the first time you saw the film? What was your first reaction? What stood out to you? Yeah, I mean, obviously the film, I was going to see the film at the cinema with my parents. And it's it's quite a funny thing, really, because I grew up with dyspraxia um, and um, loud noises really affected me. And I remember going into the cinema, like going, like watching the trailers and stuff. Unfortunately, we didn't see the film because like the, the sound of the cinema was just too loud. And I think my first time actually watching the film was on VHS. And um, I think at the time, I was just really happy that we'd got like a third Jurassic Park film. And I was so excited the fact that Sam Neill was in it. I, I think obviously the film, it's, I, you know, I enjoyed the film quite a bit. I think it, I sort of went through that thing of, because that Jurassic Park was free was sort of going on alongside sort of Operation Genesis that came out a couple of years later. And that kind of made me love JP3 more because it was more based around that film compared to the previous films. Um, and I think at the time I was just sort of swept up in the whole, you know, paleontology stuff that was going on. I was checking out all the websites. Um, I'm trying to think now, obviously the, the Universal had the actual Jurassic Park website, which was like updated big gates and stuff. And it was like, you could just check it all out and everything. And obviously a big thing was the fact that the Raptors had feathers for the first time in the franchise. And I, I remember it so vividly how much publicity that was getting, just the fact that they had these quills on the back of their necks and everything, and um, that discussion about it. But yeah, I mean, I, I would say that time kind of holds that, a special place in my heart because it's sort of Operation Genesis sort of came out a couple of years later. And I just remember there was so much talk around Dress Up Part 3 and potentially JP4 as well, what was going to happen after. Um, so yeah, I, I, I do remember it fondly. Follow James on Twitter at JurassicJames1. And I recently spoke with Bry, the host of the Neo Jurassic podcast. My name is Bry. Uh, I uh, have been doing a little podcast that sort of explores the speculative scientific possibilities of um, uh, a world in which de extincted. Uh, Mesozoic megafauna are suddenly popping up all over the place. And so the podcast kind of looks at how that sort of situation would impact the world today and looking at parallels for situations that we have um, with between man and nature currently. Um, and then on top of that, it's just a lot of fun uh, fan conversations about what we'd like to see from the future of the series, anything from like TV series to theme park rides to action figures um to films you know all of that stuff it's just a fun conversation about the future of jurassic as far as i'm concerned the aviary sequence in jurassic park 3 is like the pinnacle it's the apex it's the moment we're all waiting for with that movie i i think it's the best um conceptualized uh filmed edited uh special i mean every every aspect of that sequence is at a 9 or a 10, possibly even 11 at times, as far as I'm concerned. Um, I know all of us, I, I was, I was maybe 14 or 15 when Jurassic Park 3 came out. And um, as a kid, I had been obsessed with Quetzalcoatlus and pterosaurs. And so I was just dying and waiting, waiting uh, for every one of these movies when they came out to see a pterosaur sequence. And I knew that JP3 was, you know, the, the grand finale of the trilogy and, you know the the debut of the actual you know pterosaur in a in a movie sequence and i was not disappointed it's an incredible sequence um i i i love the production design the design of the aviary and the structure of it and 
um, that enormous uh, valley or ravine that they built um, outside of Universal Studios Hollywood um, when they were filming it is just one of the most incredible as someone who's really into theme parks and and zoos and uh, building I, I in, in my free time, I build like very elaborately designed um, habitats for reptiles and things um, with foam and 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 uh, styrofoam and you know paint and epoxy and all that. And so seeing this enormous pterosaur canyon built outside of Hollywood uh, Studios, uh, Universal Studios in Hollywood was just the most fantastical dream of movie making for me making like a huge craggy exterior for all these uh extinct animals to be flying around is just so rad and and to see it on the screen with the special effects and the fog it's just an amazing amazing sequence one of my favorite parts of the whole franchise i spoke with hiroshi katagiri about his time working on jp3 Hiroshi, tell us a little bit how you got involved with the film and maybe your first time meeting Spielberg, if you can recall that. Uh, the first of all, so they, um, they are testing the new artists, so which is uh, give us like a two weeks period of testing. So they see ability of the artists and it's the, one of the uh, uh, scariest two weeks of my life. <laughs> and uh, the first thing I I had to do was the uh, the sculpt the boy of the uh, AI, you know, which is the main character. So, which is which is big. It's really big. And so uh, Spielberg came maybe a couple of weeks after I started working and to see the body of uh, the boy, and it was nice. So he, you know, he he knows the uh, the system and the works, and he is aware. Who's been working on it? You know, of course, you know, Stan was taking him around and uh, explaining you know, what's happening. But the Spielberg himself just look at uh, look at me, then uh, told me like, "That's a great job," and that's so nice. Were you already a fan of the Jurassic franchise? We're super impressed by the first Jurassic Park. That was, you know, that's the uh, revolution of the film industry. You know, that's the uh, something we've never seen. You know, that's a new technology, CGI. And uh, the movie itself was just amazing. So we always had to compare to that. So, you know, part three was not a big deal for us because the, uh, the first one was too good. And I cannot beat that impression you know, when it came out, the first came out. So, yeah, I'm sorry for you, but, you know, <laughs> the part three <laughs> was not that good. <laughs> <laughs> for us. <laughs> I mean, I'll agree the first film is the best, but I still love JP3. So you were doing a lot of work on the sculpting of the pteranodons as well as the baby dinosaurs and the lab sequence. Were you involved with anything else related to the aviary? Uh, yeah, and also I was helping the uh, pteranodon, the bodysuit. So I was just, you know, helping to uh, to, to build those and sculpt that. It's a big, it's a, you know, it's a suit over... Uh, person uh, so that's that's a difference so this is the uh, only small part in a big movie and um so tranodon is uh, i was only part of it and but you know just looking at the result you know how it look in the movie that was really satisfying you know? but you know so i don't take a credit for that because yeah i'm not the lead artist
Mark Vignello. I am a professional special effects makeup artist. I've been doing this for about 30 years. And I've done everything from building creatures on the floor of the shop to supervising and budgeting and, and working with the producers. As an, as an effects guy, we, you know, a, a makeup effects, special makeup effects, we all kind of live a gypsy lifestyle and we go from project to project, shop to shop. I, I don't recall where I, I, I think I had just gotten off a of Godzilla and uh, for Totopolis, Patrick Totopolis designs. And I was looking for work and I had put the resume out there and I had applied at Stan Winston's, you know, a couple of years prior and they didn't have anything for me and the, the timing just worked out. Whoa, hold on a second, hold on a second. Totopolis, like mm-hmm. yes. Nick Totopolis. Nick Totopolis, the main character played by Matthew Broderick. Mm-hmm. I absolutely love that movie. You did. <laughs> That's a classic. That's the Godzilla that I want. Yeah, that was Nate. His daughter is, he has two daughters, Zoe and Nico. And uh, yeah, they, they named him, the character Nick Totopolis after Patrick, who was the, the production designer and uh, creator of the, the new Godzilla, uh, that film. And uh, yeah, they, they, Matthew Broderick's character was Nick Totopoulos. That film, when that came out, it was coming off of the, the heels of Independence Day. So basically, Sony, what I think happened, gave um, Roland Emmerich and Dean Devlin and those guys basically a blank check and just said, what do you want to do next? And they did Godzilla. And of course, they brought Patrick along to redesign the character. And at that time, it was a pretty busy time in town, but Patrick crewed up and just everybody went to work for him, myself included. And I got to work in the uh, foam rubber department, which was a department I'm comfortable with. I wasn't the department head on this show, but I also got to dress up as one of the baby Godzillas and run around on the set. I mean, I'm still hoping they make a sequel to that film. I mean, that, that's my Godzilla. I, I wouldn't hold your breath for that one, but... <laughs> Mark, you worked extensively on the aviary sequence and the Pteranodon suit. Give us a bit of backstory into what exactly your work entailed, including the physical training that went into wearing the suit. You know, there was a new dinosaur character, which was the Pteranodon, and Stan wasn't quite sure if that would work as a practical element, specifically a guy in a suit. And myself and Chris Swift, you know, really wanted to do this, Chris especially. And, you know, Chris, you know, looked at my size and said, you're about the right size to to scale this thing up, to make make it the size we need it to be. And so they, they did some mock-ups on me and some tests. And, you know, again, remember we worked really hard for like a week to do some type of quick mock-up, you know, cause it, it was a proof of concept to show Stan, like, you know, this can work. And I'll never forget, like we worked so hard. We worked these crazy hours. We were exhausted. And then, you know, we did the big show. Stan walks in for, you know, takes a look. He goes, yeah, that'll work. All right, let's move forward. And then he walked out and that was the end of it. So, and then we, uh, we started making the, the suit. The costume which I got to play, and Stan, uh, you know, knew this was a very taxing undertaking as a, as a performer. So myself and John Rosengrant, you know, who was in the Raptor suits, um, we got Stan hired a personal trainer, and he had a very nice little gym at the shop that was designed by Arnold Schwarzenegger, actually, and it was a wonderful little gym. It had a sauna, and Stan hired a personal trainer, and John and I, three days a week, would go into the shop early, about two hours early, and we would train to get ready for this, uh, for when we were going to shoot these things. And I was probably in the best shape of my life. It was, it was amazing that Stan, you know, took the characters that seriously to make sure that, you know, we would be up to the physical challenge of the task of performing in these things. When I talked to John Rosengrant, he told me how you and him were very competitive when training 
and it was almost like a competition who could train harder. And at one point he mentioned something about like you two sitting with your back against the wall trying to hold it as long as possible. John, I gotta tell you, John, when you get to know somebody, when you work out with them and stuff, and, and I, I tell the story in the Jurassic Reunion, and I'll tell it to you now, is that when you know we'd work out, John's about 10 years older than me. And when we would do our exercises, I mean, I was a young guy and I was, you know, I was, I was about 10 pounds. I could do 10 pounds heavier weight on every exercise we did. And John and I are very competitive. At the end of our leg workout, they would have us, the trainer would have us sit with our back against the wall in a sitting position for as long as we could. And if I did four minutes, John would do five. If I did five minutes, John would do six. And it pissed me off to no end to where I finally, the last day, our last day of training, I said, I need to get this guy. And I sat against the wall. I think I did like 13 minutes. And at the end of it, I had like leg spasms. I was rolling around on the ground crying and just in agony. John did 14. And then we, he walked out like it was nothing. I wanted to choke him. But it was, it, I can't imagine working out with anybody. I mean, it was real inspiring to, to work with John and, and just everybody in that shop. I mean, it really, I mean, I've read about these guys for years in the magazines before I, I got to work with them. And now you know, I consider them friends, which is, which is awesome. So. Well, I'm John Rosengrant. I'm one of the owners of Legacy Effects. And on JP3, I was the um, animatronic supervisor for Stan Winston's studio. But both Mark and I were training. Craig Love was the trainer and uh, he was one of Stan's trainers for years. But he also, uh, he trained me for Raptor training early on in the first, first couple of films and then he continued on because I was going to be in the Raptor again in this. So yeah, we had some pretty intense workouts. Well, what was competitions that? too. <laughs> I know, well, yeah, he, he definitely mentioned competitions. Uh, I think at one point he mentioned like sitting like your back against the wall. Uh -huh. or seeing like who can hold that the longest. I mean, he, he said uh, nothing but respect for you because you were, you know, <laughs> I think the, the champion on that one. Um, but I mean, like, you know, so you'd work on the first couple films with the Raptor training, like going into Jurassic Park 3. I mean, can you just, like, can you describe a little bit like how much work goes into being in the suit, like the physical like strength you need or what's it like? Well, the, the Raptor is, is difficult, as was that Pteranodon. I mean, I've been in lots of different kinds of suits. What's hard about these dinosaurs is the posture that you have to put your body into to fit inside of, of the animal. Your head is up in the neck and you're bent over you know, almost like in a downhill skiing position. So you have to really get your core strong and you, obviously your, your legs and lower body to support all of that weight. But it all comes down to your lower back and your stomach muscles. A lot of it does. Uh, of course, you work your whole upper body, your whole body, but uh, it's intense because, you know, you also, you don't have air inside of inside of those suits so air is being pumped in so that you can breathe because it's so sealed up with foam rubber that uh air just doesn't get in there and what you find which i found out the hard way on the first jurassic was that you end up breathing your own uh carbon dioxide because <laughs> you're 
you're inside there and then it gets to you after a while where you just can't you know pass out or you gotta right. get in there it's a mental thing too he's on the physical it's the mental kind of toughness that you know when they're going to shoot is after you've been in it forever and they haven't shot you and then that when you're ready to give out is exactly when you're going to shoot. So you have to dig in pretty deep. And that's sort of what would come about with those training things. When we'd get to the end where we, we'd be in that seated position where you're holding yourself for that long. And I think I got up to a little bit over 10 minutes or so holding that, but it's like, I'm going to hold it until it just can't take anymore, but you have to dig in. It's a mental thing. You have to go to kind of a happy place. Eric is carried away into the fog and out of sight of our heroes, running through the walkways while Alan and Billy seem to head in a different direction. The Pteranodon drops Eric onto the rock pillar formation. Nearby, a dozen baby Pteranodons squawk and look at Eric like food. He of course grabs a nearby skull and just throws it at them, and then he dangerously hops to the next pillar. Billy races back across the bridge, stops, and looks up at the overlook above him. The music slows down nearly fading away for a moment. We hear the metal clanking footsteps of Grant as he approaches. Alan stops about 20 feet away, and he sees Billy frozen there. The camera moves from Billy's face to a lower shot of him buckling the backpack. The sound of the click, the camera pushing into a shot of Alan's reaction, realizing Billy is about to do something crazy. Billy quickly turns and runs up the steps, clipping more buckles as he goes. Grant is in full pursuit. Billy leaps onto the railing and we get this glorious shot of Billy looking back at Grant and not saying a word as he turns and jumps, Grant reaching out to stop him and failing. The sound of the parasol opening, it's like thunder echoing off the canyon. Then we get another one of my favorite shots, yes, I have plenty. Grant turns away from the overlook and it cuts to a long shot of the walkway. Grant runs into the shot, the fog, the darkness, he's almost a silhouette. The hat makes him instantly recognizable as he runs, looking out into the canyon searching for Billy. Meanwhile, Eric continues trying to evade the baby pteranodons. He again jumps to the next column and stops. He looks down at the drop to the river and the camera tilts up and suddenly the baby pteranodons are back covering him completely. Billy approaches. Jumping from pillar to pillar, Eric reaches the end and he jumps and grabs onto Billy, barely escaping the babies. Grant catches up with Mr. and Mrs. Kirby and before you can say Kirby paint and tile plus, one of the large pteranodons has landed on the walkway in front of them. Massive, creepy, terrifying, but this is also where we get the incredible kick from Grant. Sure, the kick does absolutely nothing, but it's pretty cool. And it's cool because it's also not really a big deal. The man does not make a big show of it. It is fast and it's furious. In fact, if this film was Fast and Furious 10, Grant would have done a barrel roll backflip, kick chopped the beak in half and then walked away. But in JP3, it's much like that moment in Star Wars Episode 1 where Little Anakin is flying that plane he shouldn't be capable of flying, and he says things like, I'll try spinning, that's a good trick. In JP3, Grant is basically out of options and essentially just saying, okay, let's try a kick. 
I spoke to Mark Vignello and Shelly Johnson about this kick. Shelly, I'm so curious if this kick was in the script or if you even recall filming it. That was something that, that just kind of happened. Um, yeah, I don't think it was in the script. That, that Pteranodon was a costume. That was a Winston Pteranodon. So it wasn't a animatronic. It, there was actually, it's a guy. <laughs> there are like two or three guys, something like that. But walk, he could walk. And he had the big beak. You know, the big long, that, he was there. He was actually there. They, I think they extended, you know, some wings on it. He didn't have wings. So those are CG wings that are on them. And, of course, there are like three or four guys who were kind of there that they had to paint out. But the head and that big beak was there. So as far as I know, I think they worked that out, that, that, that Sam could do that. And as I recall, he was able to really wallop the thing. It was because it was, a, it was a big, like, resin beak. <laughs> so as, a, as I recall, he could hit it you know, full force, and um, and I think that would have come out of just the, the, the blocking the day of. You know, pro- probably it would have been Sam's idea or the stuntman's idea, probably just give, give him a kick, you know. <laughs> yeah. Mark, did Sam really kick you in the face, or was that a CGI Tyranodon? I don't remember doing that uh, specific, but there were also a lot of scenes I did that were composited in later, scenes where I'm turning around and, and you know, stuff that was shot on a green screen and then they, they just put in the film. I, you know, while it is a cool costume, like if somebody really hauled off and kicked that beak, they could have busted the fiberglass pretty good. So I'm not, I, I'm pretty sure they, were, they, they didn't want us to do that because, um, that would have been pretty catastrophic. I don't remember doing that specifically. I mean, I remember seeing Sam at the rap party and saying hi to him, but I don't really remember a lot of interaction with him specifically for certain scenes. It's really like, okay, Mark, you know, back to one, you know, we're going to wheel you after these guys. There's a scene where the camera's over my shoulder, they're running away from me, and I'm, you know, they, I, I'm in the position acting like I'm walking, and they're actually pushing me on a little dolly. We did that take, I don't know how many times. It was, it was pretty brutal, but we got the shot. After the kick, luckily the entire walkway breaks away, and Grant and a double dose of Kirby are sent falling into the river, followed by the Pteranodon, which is then, of course, crushed by the falling walkway. Meanwhile, Billy drops Eric into the water and suddenly is realizing that he's running out of space as the parasail gets caught on the cliff. It's amazing to me that this canyon isn't a real canyon. You can see some of the pictures from the set on my at Stuck on Sorna Instagram page or by visiting Shelly Johnson's blog. Back to Billy. The poor guy detaches himself and plummets to the river and it's not long until the pteranodons are attacking him. He's picked up, dropped, and for a brief moment, you might think he's going to escape. As Mr. Kirby holds Grant back, Billy yells. Soon the water turns blood red and we know that Billy has died. You know, like he, I mean, okay, so he's pretty much dead. Mostly. This sequence begins with him letting Grant down and the realization that he's put everyone in danger. His redemption is saving Eric and sacrificing himself. We won't talk about the ending right now, but since you've probably seen the film, you know that the ending does slightly take something away from this sequence. There's something like really visceral about like a pteranodon attack to me like i think it goes back to like when i was a kid and had like a dinosaur i think there were dinosaur attack cards or something like dinosaurs attack i don't know if you remember those like trading cards they were like 
extremely gory and just showcased dinosaurs like attacking cities and and different places and stuff and and it kind of is like I feel like there was some one similar to that moment in Jurassic World where the Tyrannodon just like smashes its beak through the helicopter right into the the pilot's chest like stuff brutal stuff like that and obviously there's a lot of there's a lot of brutal moments with the Tyrannodons in Fallen Kingdom uh, I'm sorry not Fallen Kingdom uh with Jurassic World but this as well with just the pecking and and all that stuff it's 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 incredible and it it does make me think back to like the book the novel as well and um I, I did just reread the novel too, so there's a you know there's a decent portion there devoted to the aviary sequence, and of course it's a little different setups uh, a bit different, but like you know knowing that these things swipe down, swoop down, and like swipe next to these people and like cut them, and it's, it, they're just just brutal creatures, and I really love them for that, and and this sequence really showcases that perfectly. It captures that Jurassic balance of action and horror, and I think the fact that it uses, um, like you say, the mist and the fog so effectively is really, really cool. Because when you see this, um, I think it's Grant who steps out first into it, isn't it? And he like steps into the unknown, and I think it's that really cool moment of sort of making you apprehensive. And I like how you can slowly see him piecing it together and working out what it is. Um, and I, I also like how, um, not just confined within that sequence, because there's so much that's done well with that, like the Pteranodon um, animatronic, for example, um, but I, I love how that whole sequence as a whole does something that I personally always love in Jurassic films, which is building on the sort of wider infrastructure that's in place on these islands. And I really like how... Um, it sort of gives you this sense that Isla Sauna was unique in its own right. Because um, obviously in The Lost World you get some of the worker village, um, but all of the animals are very, very similar to those that we see in Jurassic Park. Whereas in JP3, kind of getting the pteranodons and getting this insight into the idea that InGen was experimenting with more sort of animals as well is really, really fascinating. And obviously you, you do get pteranodons at the end of The Lost World, but I feel like here it kind of really builds on that and gives you a sense of where they've come from and what InGen's been doing. Um, and that's what I always love about this. I love seeing that. I love seeing the riverway with the boat with the Cajun and just thinking about what that might have been used to transport. I love seeing the construction areas. But j just like all of that kind of infrastructure stuff is really, really cool to me. And that's why I love the aviary so much. And you can find Tom on Twitter and Instagram at Tom underscore Jurassic. James, we spoke earlier about the whole sequence, but what are your thoughts specifically about the pteranodons? I mean, we obviously we know that obviously pteranodon didn't have teeth, and I, I can understand why they obviously wanted to make the pteranodons look more menacing. I mean, they do within sort of their their facial sort of features, uh, and obviously sort of being able to sort of pick up people, you know, an animal like that probably wouldn't be able to pick up a person, you know, like Eric Kirby and carry them that far, or, you know, or anybody else because of the, the sort of the weight issues in terms of sort of as well as like the clam, you know, the camber of sort of lifting off of somebody, or, you know, especially sort of like flying and trying to get, sort of get um, uplift. But I think 
you know it's a film and you know you kind of have to sort of like suspend your disbelief at certain parts because it is Jurassic you know so I think you know the every sequence I think it's really well done and obviously that it's been inspired by the original Jurassic Park book and um, because obviously there is the Avery sequence in there when you know Grant Lex and Tim go on you know on the boat and they go through um and they, they've kind of taken that inspiration and you know took it in a new direction I, I think in terms of setup it's really well done you know you have sort of Eric crossing the bridge and you know that they're in something some sort of you know Avery and you know then the Tranodons sort of come in to sort of frame and obviously there are different you know sort of species to the one we saw at the end of the lost world as well so it's sort of like we're seeing new species of sort of creatures being added in. I think I think with Jurassic Park 3 especially, it's kind of quite confusing though in terms of the dinosaurs that we do see in terms of sort of like the raptors, because obviously they're so different to the tiger version that we see in the Lost World. Yeah. And, you know, you have a lot of discussion about, you know, the islands being sort of different climates and stuff like that. Um, and, you know, different dinosaurs and different sides of the island. So, you know, I, I think the Avery sequence is really well done in terms of that as an action set piece. Bri, what are your thoughts on the Pteranodons? Well, I don't know. The Pteranodon sequence, I, I'm a big pterosaur nerd, and the Pteranodons in Jurassic Park 3 aren't the worst by any means, but they have teeth and they pick up people by their feet, which they really could not do, nor would they ever want to do. Um, and I just think that is kind of lame for me i when we I, do you, you you know what it you know you're you know what a quetzalcoatlus is right yeah i'm definitely clueless about that yeah i'm a maniac but um did you see the dominion teaser so that huge ass terrifying fuzzy looking pteranodon that's featured in there that like that big scary thing it was like it was taller than a than a giraffe and its skull was like eight feet long and so that thing would have just eaten every human being on the planet you know like we're like perfectly bite-sized we're already vertical so all it has to do is just like slam its beak down around us and then just swallow us i mean it's insane i think that's like a way scarier sort of um pterosaur menace to have had in the movie that makes a little more sense um so i probably would have swapped out the pteranodons with quetzalcoatlus just because i think they're way cooler and scarier and more plausible but I do love that sequence. So, I mean, I'm, I, I do love it. I, I wouldn't change any other of the beats or, or shots or anything. It's perfect in my eyes. I think that, that, that that's about it. I mean, I can get into the minutia, but I think I've already rambled too much. <laughs> After Billy is killed, we get one of the creepiest shots of the entire franchise. The famous Pteranodon turned to the camera. <laughs> Pretty sure that's me, and I'm pretty sure that was one of the things we shot on a green screen. So there was a day came in, and they just on a green screen stage. I suited up, and they just had me do different movements, like turn left, turn right. You know, the puppeteers would would. I mean, only I could do the gross body movements, a lot of the head movement, the blinking, the opening, closing of the mouth. That was all done by off-camera puppeteers. So that shot, I'm. We weren't anywhere near the water or anything like it was in the film, so I'm pretty sure that was one of the green screen shots that was composited later. Mark, I've seen some footage in the suit, like testing it out. What can you tell us about that footage? That was my first uh, my first time in the suit, and if you look carefully, the base of the neck is not glued down, and they had to. Uh, I mean, I was blind. There was no air coming in that thing, and. You know, we learned a lot, and you'll see Chris Swift come up and kind of bend down and talk to the base of the neck. That's where, you know, where my head was. And then after that test, you know, I got a monitor. 
Uh, they, they got two lines of air, one giving me oxygen, the other one taking out the CO2. Um, you know, there's some little modifications were made to make it a little more comfortable, but for that first suit, getting it on, it wasn't quite a hundred percent done yet. So it was really hard, um, to, to, to get this thing, uh, to get a performance out of me because I, I couldn't breathe. The sequence switches between CGI and shots of you in the suit. How much of it was originally shot of you attempting all the movements? Well, they, they tried different things. They tried to fly me and see what that would look like. And it, it, that didn't work. And um, I mean, the movements had to be so fast and it was, it was a very cumbersome suit. They did, um, there is a scene where a Pteranodon lands on top of uh, the aviary, the, the cage, and it, its head comes down. And that, you know, that cage set, it was on stage 28, which was the Phantom of the Opera set at Universal Studios, which sadly doesn't exist anymore. And it was a, a massive stage and it was, oh, I don't know, 30, 40 feet off the ground. So they hoisted me up, literally. And I'm like, if this cable breaks, I'm a dead man. Like, there's nothing I can do. I was so helpless in this costume. They put me on top of the cage and, you know, they'd film some scenes with that. And then they'd get me down. And I mean, there were so many things that were done that were intercut with other pieces and parts. Like there's scenes where feet land. That's me just with the feet, puppeteering nose. Sometimes I just had the head on. Other times I had half, you know, the half suit on. I mean, the full suit was really for walking through the fog during the first reveal. That's that's what that was for, and that was uh, that was done second unit much later. Tell me, there's actual footage of them flying you around? Yes, it exists absolutely, and it, it uh, Matt Winston, I'm pretty sure, has that behind the scenes stuff. Um, I have an old VHS tape somewhere that has some of the footage on it. Stan was gracious enough to. to let me have some it would take some digging but it's it's literally just this pteranodon being hoisted above the stage and then dropped on this uh, you know cage track that, that they were you know, walking around in um you know we, we talked i talked with john about wanting to try as much as i could you know as a dinosaur and he just said they're gonna have to do cgi because you'll be in the water the arms will be flapping and i'm like i just trained for three months and he's like mark no <laughs> i like your enthusiasm but John Rosengrant of Legacy Effects. We, we were trying to see how much we could get in camera practically, but um, it, it didn't really go anywhere because they were definitely, that was in the middle of the CG world at that point in time, had really come on strong. You know, now we're several years in from Jurassic Park and it made sense to have the thing fly via CG. It, it just, too much was required of it. If it had been just a little snippet of something, I think we, we probably could have gotten something going. But I, I think what we did with it was what it, it should be for the movie. David, you saw Mark in the suit. What was it like to watch? And was it clear how difficult it was to perform? Like just you being on set and watching him. Did you know like, wow, that has to be painful or just difficult? Yeah, I know it was really hard for him to perform because this, the way he was inside the suit was uh, because of the anatomy of the pteranodon, none of him was actually touching the ground. He, his foot was on, it's kind of on, his feet were on stilts, but his, it was angled in such a way that like the stilts came out of his toes down to the ground. Like his ankle was kind of acting like a backwards knee. Oh, wow. Okay. And then his knee, yeah, so he was, so his feet, you know, his feet were off the ground on these stilts. And his toes were pointing down to the floor. On the front, 
his arms were on these arm extensions that that went that were like three feet long that went down to the floor that acted like the wings. So he was it was a really awkward position to hold. It required a lot of strength, like a, basically he was doing a crunch the entire time. His visibility wasn't great to begin with, and so he he'd been rehearsing and rehearsing and rehearsing, and uh, on in the studio. And then when you get to set, they fog the set up, and he's no longer walking on flat ground, but he's walking on a metal grate. <laughs> so it was. Uh, I remember it being super challenging for them to get the shots. But uh, but I but you look at the film, and uh, I'm sure you didn't notice. Like, oh wow, that guy must have been struggling. <laughs> <laughs> Same thing with the baby pteranodons. They look like a bunch of chirpy little birds in my memory, but like you, you never would have suspected what a shit show it was going on underneath. You talked to Hiroshi. I did. Yes. Uh, yeah, I think he may he may have been on the baby pteranodons also. I don't. I'm trying to remember, there was so many of us that it's kind of the faces blur. I, so I spoke to a couple other people at the shop Yeah. were integral to the creation. I don't want to give you their names. Okay. They're integral to the creation, and they were like, you know, they said, you know what, I don't want to talk to you. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I was like, okay, well, fair enough. Uh, one of them specifically said, you know what, I had a, I had a decent time uh, at the shop, but he said on set he had a, he had a really unpleasant experience on set. Okay. And he was like, you know what, I, he, he didn't want to... Uh, Basically, bad mouthing. Every, even every bad experience is a learning experience. Uh, you know, you learn to get a little better at your craft. And, uh, I mean, well, it was it was funny for me because I had nothing to do with the planning or the build of the baby on specifically. I I literally got thrown on because Stan felt like he kind of screwed me over. And so I literally kind of went to set sight unseen. I didn't know, I, I had seen them building the puppets in the studio, but I had nothing to do with You know, the, this massive team of guys was just, I mean, there's 20 professional puppeteers getting together to try and make these things happen. Yeah, I, w- I wish there had been more behind the scenes pushback. It's comedy. In the finished product, you can't tell. Shelly, how did you approach the filming of the sequence? I mean, specifically, there are some incredible shots of the pteranodons flying. The shot where they rip the sail, the camera movement, it all works to me. What can you tell us about that? The ILM supervisor was a guy named Jimmy Mitchell. And Jimmy, you know, typically when you do a visual effects film, it's all about making the camera not move. When you start moving the camera, their job gets exponentially complicated, um, and it's uh, it, it's crazy how how complicated it gets. And Jimmy was always always wanted the camera movement. He said, "Shelley, even if you're going to pan off the actors up into the lights and back onto the actors," he said, "He said I'd rather have that camera performance in there, and because that'll show me what it is the camera is doing." Um, than have a pristine background. He goes, I can clean up the background. I can paint those lights out. I can do all that stuff. And I can add, uh, you know, the Torondons in there. What I need is the camera movement. You know, I need you to, to move the camera as though, as though you would. If, if a Torondon was flying by and the camera was getting buffeted by the wind and from the wings or whatever it was, you know, um, you know, he, he pushed daily for me to do that for him, and, and uh, which was great. And that's 
so with the, when you get into the sequence, like the, the canyon sequence, where they're fly, where we're tracking with uh, Alessandro and Trevor, you know, they're moving a little bit, and we're moving a lot. We're providing almost twice the amount of movement than you need. I mean, you sort of, you know, because when you think about it, film's a two-dimensional medium, you sort of have to move the camera twice as much than you really would think you would, which is why a lot of these sequences... You know, end up not really looking good. As you're shooting it, you feel like you're moving the camera way too much. You look at the camera and it's just all over the place. And you think, oh, there's no way. This is, this is going to be way too much movement. <laughs> and it's not. You get it on, you get it on there and you, and you barely see it. Um, and I think that's where people get thrown off. I think they, they probably were moving the camera quite a bit, but it was just too timid. Um, and they had no idea you needed to move the camera that much. I mean, later with Joe, we, we did stuff uh, on Captain America where you know, they're flying and they're on the wing of a plane. and It reminded me a lot of the Toronto sequence just because it, it was all that same movement you had to do all over again. You know, it, was, it was just very aggressive, massive amounts of movement because um, you have to really rely on the fact that only about half of it's going to be seen. <laughs> that's just the case of it. I can't even explain why. Um, but that's just what happens. And, and uh, so... Uh, um, yeah, that's part of the puzzle of doing these kinds of movies. You know, it's uh, it's when we started this movie, um, I think it was the day before uh, Steven Spielberg came down to talk to. Uh, we were Joe and I were just on stage, whatever we we're pre-lighting or whatever it was, and um, his parting words to us, you know, were, uh, you know, just so you guys know, you know, these movies are really hard to make. <laughs> and then he left. <laughs> it's like okay. <laughs> I'm getting, I, I got a feeling he's speaking the truth there, <laughs> sure enough. They're, they're incredibly difficult. As the group leaves the aviary, two things happen. One, the aviary door that Mrs. Kirby closed opens up. Such a classic Kirby thing to happen. And the second thing, we get a really cool shot of Grant on the boat looking at the full aviary as the fog is lifted. And you can see Jack Johnson's concept art of this on my Instagram page. I want to say thank you for listening to this episode. You can follow me on Twitter and Instagram at StuckOnSorna. You can also email me your questions and complaints. I love those. StuckOnSorna at gmail.com. Feel free to give me a rating on Apple Podcasts. A big thank you to Balls0721 for leaving the first written review and five stars. And don't forget, there are other Jurassic podcasts out there. The Jurassic Park podcast, See Jurassic Right, The Missing Compies, The Neo-Jurassic podcast, Jurassic Park Minute, The In General podcast, and more. So check them out. On the next episode, you've been in two movies with dinosaurs. And they both feature Barney. So was that on purpose? Like, was that written into your contract? No, I don't know where that came from. I can't imagine that being in the script. Like, was that something you didn't know about? Pick your head.